the Polkar sisters were part of um, kind of a pedagogical experiment um, organized by their father and mother. They wanted to see if genius was, you know, made or if it was inherent. Um, today, young people really do have um, kind of dominance in the game. These parents are so proud of their kids, mm. and a lot of them make sure that they have things going on in their lives beyond chess. It's either a parent pushing too hard or they're just not being the resources. When you think of the world's great chess players, you might well think of a teenager, maybe Bobby Fischer. He won the so-called Game of the Century at 13. Or Magnus Carlsen. He became a grandmaster at 13 and was number one in the world by 19. Maybe even St. Louis's own Susan Polgar and her sisters. All three saw big success before the age of 16. Now a new exhibit at the World Chess Hall of Fame in the Central West End puts these prodigies into focus. It's called Masterminds Chess Prodigies, and it opens this Thursday. I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. Joining us today to talk about it is Emily Allred. She's a curator at the World Chess Hall of Fame. Emily, welcome. Thank you for having me, Sarah. Looking forward to speaking with you today. So Emily, what made the Chess Hall of Fame decide to focus on prodigies for this exhibit? Um, one really unique thing about the World Chess Hall of Fame is that we have a sister organization, the St. Louis Chess Club, located right across the street. So we get to see chess history happening right here in St. Louis all the time. Mm -hmm. And we also collect it as it happens. So when we hold big tournaments like the U.S. Junior Championship, the U.S. Junior Girls, um, the Cairns Cup, the strongest um, international um, tournament for women in the world, we're collecting the score sheets, the posters, <laughs> things signed by the players. Um, in addition to just getting to know them and, you know, because a lot of them, for a lot of them, St. Louis is a second home. So it was just kind of a natural fit to develop this into a show. So you had a lot of this stuff already laying around. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. Our collection um, related to St. Louis tournaments is very deep. Um, but that being said, we were also able to get some really exciting loans for this show um, from some of today's rising players, as well as like the king of the chess world, Magnus Carlsen. Mm. We have um, one of his world championship trophies on loan to us, as well as this really gorgeous um, amber chess set. And you don't have to be a grandmaster to appreciate the beauty of this piece. It's um, uh, an amber chess set that once belonged to another um, world champion who was also a prodigy. Mm. And now it's in his collection. And he was very kind to send um, all of these materials to us all the way from Norway in the middle of a pandemic, which, um, you know, is just a really wonderful support of our museum. Hmm. So there's some history in these items, but it sounds like some of them might also qualify as art. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We try to blend both um, art and pop culture um, as well as history in our shows. So we have um, things that you might expect, like a show about chess prodigies and famous players like Bobby Fischer and the Polgar sisters. But we also do shows as varied as um, our other show that we currently have on view, which is um, Keith Haring, Radiant Gambit. And that's um, a show with um, art from throughout Keith Haring's career, as well as um, chess sets with Haring themes, and then work by local St. Louis artists 
taking inspiration from herring as well as the game of chess. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk a bit about this idea of being a chess prodigy. As somebody who doesn't pay that much attention to the chess world, do young people tend to dominate high-level chess, or does it just feel that way since when they do, it forces all of us to pay attention at such an event? I think um, today young people really do have um, kind of dominance in the game. You know, one thing that's really fun about this show is you're getting to celebrate these kids who, you know, work really hard to accomplish things. You know, they do have natural talent, but, you know, they study really hard. They play in tournaments. And, you know, today, right now, um, there aren't a lot of over-the-board tournaments, so they're competing in these international championships with players around the world, you know, from their bedrooms. <laughs> so it's it's really cool to see um, their accomplishments. And I think people are just, you know, fascinated by, um, you know, the accomplishments of these young players too because it's just so interesting and unexpected to see a kid, you know, defeat a world champion. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there is just something so fascinating about it. Even if you're someone who's not that fascinated by chess, we almost look at them the way you might look at a specimen almost in a zoo, which is, is kind of, it's uncomfortable, but it, we're almost in awe of their abilities there. Do you delve into that in, in the exhibit at all, the, the almost freakish nature of being so good at something so young? I think one of the things about this crop of young players is that, you know, there are some difficult examples of um, how chess prodigies grew up. You could look at Bobby Fischer for an example. Mm -hmm. But these kids, they have the support of family. Um, one really wonderful thing when we were reaching out to people for loans for the show or some of them just sent us um, digital files of pictures or cell phone videos that they took at, you know, award ceremonies and things like that is that these parents are so proud of their kids. Mm. And a lot of them make sure that they have things going on in their lives beyond chess. Because if you look at um, some of the prodigies who had more of a difficult time or maybe dropped out early, sometimes it was either a parent pushing too hard or they're just not being the resources um, that even if they were interested in chess, for them to kind of take it further. So today's chess parents have maybe learned from some of the mistakes of the past. I think so. So you mentioned Bobby Fischer. Um, you can't talk about chess prodigies without talking about Bobby Fischer. And yet some of the things that happened later in his life, I mean, he was a notorious anti-Semite. How do you deal with that in the context of this show? Um, so I would say that the things that Fischer said later in his life – there's no defense for them, you know, they're awful. But this show focuses more on um, his accomplishments as a youngster. And, you know, to tell the story of American chess, you kind of have to grapple with Fisher because um, he he started great, um, having his big accomplishments in the 60s and 70s. And that's when there started to be scholastic chess on a large scale in the United States. And after his win in the 1972 World Chess Championship, um, uh, membership in the U.S. Chess Federation almost doubled overnight, and hmm. you get you start seeing um, a lot more financial support for chess for youth. So, despite his um, kind of late in life difficulties, you know there are a lot of players who still were inspired to take up the game. You know, kind of in the 70s and even later because mm -hmm. of him. So it, it is definitely a difficult thing to approach in a show. So he's included. It sounds like you don't really mm -hmm. get into his afterlife. You're focused on the young years for all these guys. 
Yeah, yeah. So it's the young, the kind of younger years. Um, we do have one section in the show because we didn't want people to get um, dismayed, you know, that if they didn't take up chess as a five-year-old. There's still plenty of time. You can still take up chess at any age. Um, and one great example is Gisela Gresser. And she is the winningest U.S. women's champion um, of all time. She's um, won nine times. Mm. Um, and she didn't take up chess until she was in her late 20s. And she learned on a transatlantic cruise. And then she started competing um, in the top U.S. women's tournament and really dominated it almost for... Um, I guess like she won her final one um late 60s early 70s hmm. so you know um going from the 1930s or late 1930s on she was a, a force boy i was really happy to hear about her and realize that old people can still have a chance to learn new things until you mentioned late 20s is when she picked it up that, that's already in the rearview mirror for some of us is there any point in trying to learn how to play chess at say 40 Oh, of course. I mean, I um, played when I was younger, but I always, but I wasn't a, a grandmaster or anything approaching it. Um, and I personally, I find a lot of pleasure in doing chess puzzles and things like that. And mm. one great thing about chess isn't, you know, whether you win or lose, it's um, getting to know people. Um, you get to know people from around the world playing chess, especially um, if you go online and play. Um, it has such a great sense of history and then just its pop culture impact. I mean, you can't, you know, turn on the TV without seeing someone say that someone's a pawn mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, some queen, you know, a gambit or things like that. And it, it's like the language of chess is part of the language of our culture. So I think um, whether or not you have the chance of becoming a grandmaster, it's a really great pastime for people. I feel like you're, you're letting me down gently here, and I do appreciate that. <laughs> I, I don't have delusions of, of grandmaster status, but as you say, it's, you know, it's such a worthy pursuit, even if you're not among the best in the world. But, but look, I want to go back to some of these prodigies. Um, you've got some that you feature that are maybe lesser known for those outside the sport, but some amazing stories here. And this includes somebody who grew up right here in St. Louis. This is Leroy Muhammad. Can you tell me about his life. Yeah, so Leroy Muhammad grew up here in St. Louis, and um, he started to dominate um, local tournaments as a teenager. And then he went on to um, the U.S. Open, and he defeated um, Walter Brown, who is a player who would become a multi-time uh, U.S. champion. And he he had such a quick rise to the top, and then he kind of um, disappeared from the chess world for a number of years. Hmm. Um, so it, it's someone who he attended Sumner High School. Of course, I have to mention where he went to high school. Of course. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but he's like another great example of, you know, the alumni of that school, you know, because they have s such storied um, uh, students there. Um, we also... Um, and, and sorry, yeah. going, going back oh, to Leroy here, I understand he was one of the first African-American chess masters in the entire yes. U.S. Was there significance in that happening at the same time it was in the middle of the civil rights movement? Yeah, um, I think there definitely is. Um, I've talked to historians and people who were active at the time, and fortunately, um, for the most part, maybe because the chess world was more based in New York, it was a more welcoming atmosphere than some places, but that doesn't mean that there weren't challenges. And you, you know, you can see that if you look at the numbers of people who rise to the top, mm -hmm. um, you know. 
And, and do we know why he gave it up or why he sort of retreated from from this world of being one of the top players? Uh, we don't know. You know, a lot of people when they're um, young play the game and then maybe they lose interest after they graduate from high school and there isn't that kind of like structure. Um, mm-hmm. But there, um, there's a really wonderful blog about African-American chess history called The Chess Drum. And um, they write about um, Muhammad and um, some of his his uh, later years, there's like a nice um, obituary actually of him there. And he did go back to playing chess, you Mm. know, when he was um, in his later years. Mm. I also, I don't want to just talk about men today. There's also been some women prodigies or girl prodigies, I guess, since they weren't women yet at that point. Mm -hmm. And these Polgar sisters, one of whom now lives in St. Louis, they were a huge deal. Can you tell us a bit about their story? Yeah. So, um, the Polkar sisters were part of um, kind of a pedagogical experiment um, organized by their father and mother. They wanted to see if genius was, you know, made or if it was inherent. So they decided they kind of went through different things that they could try to teach their daughters, um, you know, foreign languages, music and things like that. But Susan really took to chess. And so they all um, kind of had a training program I think Judith, the youngest sister, mentioned that there were 30 chess boards at their house, you know, where they would have puzzles set up Hmm. um, to kind of solve them. And they had a huge cabinet of um, games and things like that. And Susan really was a trailblazer in the world of chess. Um, She was the first woman to become a grandmaster through kind of traditional means. She's a women's world chess champion. And then here in St. Louis, she's been leading Webster University to numerous championships um, with their chess team. Hmm. Um, And then her younger sister, her youngest sister, Judith, she is one of the strongest female chess players of all time or she is the strongest female chess player of all time. Sorry, I have to Hmm. correct myself. And she, you know, is first woman to um, be in the top 10 players in the world, but they faced a lot of difficulty on their way to the top, um, you know, due to sexism and things like that. Hmm. So they really, um, you know, kind of went through a difficult time, but there are these wonderful examples of, you know, what women can do in the game. And you said your parent or their parents had set this up as an experiment. Um, mm-hmm. did, what are we thinking? Are, what does this experiment show? Is it all come down to the training and the exposure at a young age? They say that, you know, I looked, um, they say that it is, you know, a lot of training. Hmm. I think, you know, you have to like the game to probably excel at it at the highest level. Um, And, you know, there is a certain amount of innate talent, but looking at what these kids do, they are training all the time and things like that. You know, there's a lot of hard work that they put into it, too. Hmm. You've also got some younger prodigies where um, people who might be considered almost a current prodigy where you've got mm-hmm. their stuff on hand here. Who's somebody for the, the younger set that they might relate to here? I think um, Carissa Yip is one of the really exciting young American players right now. Um, she's been rising to the top. And one really cool thing that she did um, right here in St. Louis is she defeated the reigning women's world chess champion in a game in the Cairns Cup, which was is this really strong international tournament featuring the best female players from around the world. Hmm. She's only 16, and so she's um, on track if she, you know she keeps going to become um, only the third female grandmaster in the United States and the first one to be born here. 
hmm. um, to achieve the title. So it's been really cool to see her accomplishments. Um, and then there's another young player, um, Jeffrey Shong, who also competes here in St. Louis often. He's in the top 50 players in the world. He won the World Junior Championship um, just at 15, and he's the first American to win it since 1997. So I feel like, you know, if you're looking at those names that you're going to start hearing, um, definitely those two. Hmm. That's very exciting. And and this exhibit, this opens on Thursday. Um, RSVPs are required for the reception. That's, again, at the World Chess Hall of Fame in the Central West End. But even though RSVPs are required, it is free. It's open to the public. You can get more information about that on our website or on theirs. We did have a question that came in from a caller who was happy to have us uh, take it off the air. Rich wants to know, why do we continue to separate boys and girls in chess competition? Uh, Emily, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. It's a good question. Yeah, so there are lots of opinions on that. Um, you know, the Polgar sisters, they especially she is like, I want to compete against guys because that's how, you know, the stronger players at the time were male. Mm -hmm. um, there's no um, enforced separation of men and women or girls and boys in the U.S. championships, um, the U.S. junior championships. But a lot of times, you know, if you're a female player, you might choose to compete in the women's championship or the junior girls championship just because um, the prize fund, you might have a better shot of getting a high, you know, a higher place in the tournament and therefore a higher prize fund. Um, a lot of the younger players, you know, they don't compete only in male or female tournaments. Mm. Um, and then some people say, you know, in a world where there is sexism, sometimes it's nice to have those competitions for girls and women where it's kind of a space just for them. That makes sense. Well, speaking of female uh, chess prodigies, I can't have this conversation at this moment in time without mentioning The Queen's Gambit. This has been a huge hit for Netflix, and it deals with a young woman, uh, again, girl. I keep using woman when I should use girl, uh, a girl chess prodigy. Have you seen an increase in interest into the Hall of Fame and, and the chess club because of this Netflix show? Yes, we have had an enormous amount of people who've come here for the first time because they've become interested in the game just um, just because of the show. And they'll mention it when they come here and they'll say, oh, you know, we'd like to get more into the game. We also, um, this past Christmas, our um, award-winning gift shop, Q Boutique, they sold double the amount of chess sets that they usually do. Hmm. Um, so it's been really heartening to see a lot of people um, kind of trying to dip their toes in the water of chess um, after they see the show. I wonder if all those chess sets, if in addition to the Netflix show being a factor in that, um, just so many of us stuck at home looking for activities that are quieter. You know, they say puzzles are flying off the shelves. Do you think chess is seeing a bigger resurgence even than just this show? Yes. Um, chess has been really popular on Twitch since um, the pandemic hmm. with um, streamers and things like that. But then also, I think there are a lot more people, you know, you might not be able to be in the same room with someone, but you can play a chess game with them online. And I think you mentioned earlier, that's how they're doing these big international competitions at this point, almost Zoom style. Yes, there's um, this really sweet picture. It's not in the show, but, um, you know, seeing um, uh, kind of the spaces where these kids are competing. One of the lenders to the show, Alice Lee, um, she had her set up with her computer um, 
and also some stuffed animals. I, I'm imagining maybe for moral support. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're doing a lot of these big tournaments online, and it you know it seems like it's a nice way for them to kind of keep engaged with the game when they can't um, actually get together. Hmm. Well, if people are feeling spurred to learn more about chess or learn more about these child prodigies, um, this exhibit is going to be open all the way through November seventh. Um, it's open to visitors with a 25% capacity, so you don't have to worry so much about germs. There should be some nice spacing in there. You can also do a virtual tour. There's all sorts of ways to do that. We'll get that information on our website. Um, And Emily Allred, curator at the World Chess Hall of Fame, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thank you. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.